Uh, we are continuing our series in the book of James. So you guys can go ahead and take your Bibles out and turn to James chapter 4, verse 13 through 17. Again, my name is Ricardo. I'm one of the campus pastors here. Justin Anderson, who is our primary communicator, is out of town this week. He's actually in St. Louis preaching at the Journey Church, which is uh, another Act 29 church, the church planning network that we're a part of, uh, where Darren Patrick is actually the, the lead pastor there. And so Darren was a guy who we brought in a few months ago to lead our men's conference. And so Justin is there filling in for him, and then I'll be here with us this morning. And we were talking about planning the future and God's sovereignty, which, which for me, I, I chuckle at that because I am not a natural planner. Um, I'm into spontaneity. So I would much rather you to tell me to do something and say, you have no time, you have to do it now, as opposed to saying, hey, you have something to do, you have six months, because I'm not going to do it until the last day anyway. Um, and so this is, this is really hard for me. Um, and premarital counseling, you, you know, before you get married, you go to premarital counseling, and they have you fill out all these questions and sheets, and you talk about conflict resolution, and you talk about sex and money and family background. And then you get to the part where you talk about family and planning your family. And, and, and your, your, your future spouse fills out a part. You know, I want this many kids. I want this many kids. So I put down like eight. And then my, my wife put down like two or what, whatever it was. And then, we, then you have a plan. And you say, okay, three and a half to five years. We're going to be married for three and a half to five years. We're going to live off one income. And then we're going to save your income. And, then, and that way when we have kids, maybe you can stay at home the first couple of years. You have all these really good plans. And that's what we plan for. And then about 10 months into our first year of marriage, we come home from a vacation. And we had um, a scorpion problem at the condo we're living in. And so my wife goes upstairs. And I hear this scream. Like, I'm not going to try to do it. It was, a, it, 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 was a, it was a terrible scream. And I thought, that's not a scorpion scream. That's like someone's dead up there. Um, and I run upstairs, and she's got this um, pregnancy stick, um, and, and she's looking at the stick, and she's, ah, ah, and I, and, and, and I had this out-of-body moment where I said, don't overreact, because if you overreact, she's going to lose it. And I said, what does it mean? And she goes, I'm pregnant. And I go, children are a blessing from the Lord. <laughs> This is a good thing. And, and on the inside, I'm going, no, you can't be pregnant. We have, we have three more years to go. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, uh, God blessed with, with, our, with our baby boy. <laughs> it's funny because we said about three and a half years we would start having kids. And we're three and a half years now. My wife's pregnant with our second kid. And so it is a blessing, but it was like, ah, uh, God just said, yeah, that was good. It was wise, but... Uh, I'm going to do something else. <laughs> I'm going to do something else. And funny, I was talking to Jason just uh, before here, and he, and he was saying, how many more kids do you guys want to have? And I was like, oh, I think we're done. We're, we want to adopt and everything. And, and as I said that, I'm going, watch. Holly's going to have this baby, and, and then she's going to get pregnant again. <laughs> and I'm going to be like, children are a blessing from the Lord. <laughs> so th that, that's what we're talking about this morning, is, is talking about planning the future and God's sovereignty. And so in the sense that we can make plans, but yet God ultimately has the final decision. And as we continue in the book, we, we, we see that James gets at a certain people from the very beginning. Um, if we've noticed anything about James, James goes straight to the heart. Um, he's very practical, and, 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 he, and he just, he's clear, and he's real. And he starts off with a little sarcasm and talking to a group of people. We pick up in verse 13. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. 
When he says, come now, that, that has a hint of sarcasm that's used twice in the New Testament, and both times they're from James. And it's not, come here, my good friends. It's saying, come here, you who think you know what's going on. There's that sense of, come here, those of you who you think you know what the future is going to go, and here's your planning. And I, I got to pause for a second because it almost, it seems like knowing this is a negative tone that James is saying we shouldn't plan. And, and like I said before, for me, I, I'd be okay with that. I'm, I'm more, I have to work really, really hard at planning. I, I have to work really, really hard at organizing things. It does not come easy to me. And of course, for my wife, this is the way God works. She's a planner and she's organized. Everything goes in a certain way. To me, I, don't, I do my laundry, white colors together, just throw them in there. It doesn't matter. It's all coming out. I eat with my food, all just mush it together. It's all going in the same place. And my wife's kind of like the, I don't like my peanut butter to touch my jelly person, right? And there's, there's some organization there. And so when you, you see this, it's like, is James implying that, that, that planning is, is, is bad? Is, is it evil? And then we can look and let Scripture interpret Scripture. And, and Psalm, Solomon says this in, in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 1. He says, The plans of the heart belong to the man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And then he goes on in 16.9 to say, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And so what, what, what he's saying is here is planning is not a bad thing. He's not saying that planning is the issue, but there's a perspective in which we have to have. And so he's saying plan, it's wise. In fact, I would say that God is the ultimate planner. We read about in Scripture and more explicitly in Ephesians chapter 1 how God planned before the foundations of this world. Before God began to create he planned. He planned that he would create a people knowingly who would sin against them. He planned. He was not reactive. He was proactive in saying, I will send a redeemer. I will send myself. I will send my son. And then I will take my redeemed people and I will let them worship me in a context called the new heavens and the new earth. This was all laid down before the foundations of this world. And so we see God as a planner. And then us, you and me, created in the image of God, we're planners. In the beginning of the story, we see God creating and forming a world out of nothing, making it suitable, and then creating humanity, Adam and Eve, and placing them in the garden. And he looks at them and he says, get to work. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue, cultivate, take what's here, the potential that is rooted in creation, and grow it. Make it better. So you had to think there was, there was some spontaneity, some things came up, hey, we're going to do this today, we thought we were going to do that. But for the most part, Adam and Eve probably got together and planned, hey, tomorrow we're going to feed the porcupines, and after that we're going to go to the hippopotamus, and, and we're going to grow, we're going to plant, a, plant a, this type of tree over here, we're going to expand this, and so forth. They were, they, they were planning. And so planning is not sinful. It's not evil. You should plan. You should have a plan for your life. You should have goals and set goals. You should, you should plan and ask good questions like, should I have life insurance? Should I have a retirement plan? Should I go to college? Should I get married? Those are all really good questions. And you can plan to do business and plan to make money and plan to make more money and plan how you're going to spend your money. Those things in themselves are not inherently evil or sinful. We should be planning. Yet, there's a way in which we can plan, and in our planning and in our charts and in our organization, that it, it can become problematic. 
So James goes on as he's talking to these people who said, I will go to and there and, and, and back and forth. As he talks to them, this, this language that they use would have been common because the way that these people made money is that they had to travel the different places to trade. And they would take their goods and they would sell it to a merchant in this city. Then they would go to another city to create wealth for them. So their planning in themselves wasn't the issue. But then he goes on to verse 14 and he says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. James says, you don't know what tomorrow may bring. He's addressing a people that were planning, that were using earthly, culturally, humanly wisdom to make their planning, which is no wisdom at all. Meaning they were doing all the right things, cultivating, subduing, multiplying, being fruitful. Men were providing for their families. They were taking care, but they were doing it all at a horizontal level without having the acknowledgement of the vertical relationship and the sovereign word of God. So, so here's what I'm saying. There is a way that we can go and do all the right things. We could be good fathers and good mothers, and we can be good neighbors, and we can do them in such a way and totally miss God. There's a way that we can take the scriptures and we can take the, the words and the teachings and the imperative commands of Jesus and do those things. We cannot steal. We cannot lie and be on a horizontal level, on a social level, totally be living up to what God has said to do or what he said not to do and then totally miss it. In fact, in churches today and in this church and in every other church, Christians will gather together and there'll be two people sitting next to each other. One person is obeying the law, he's giving, he's, he's sharing, he's a part of community groups, and the other person is doing the exact same thing and both are doing them out of two different motivations. One is doing it because it's just the right thing to do and one is doing it out of motivation that is rooted in a vertical relationship and knowing who God is, what God has done, and what God will do. And the other one is doing it purely off religion meaning works. I obey, therefore God will accept me. And so these people, they, they were going about making plans, wanting to go about and do business up in itself, not a bad deal, unless, unless you're not doing it with a motivation that's born out of the gospel. And so the issue here wasn't behavior, it wasn't actions, like most of us, and, and to come to church weekly and to attend Bible studies or whatnot, the issue is not so much the reasons or the things that we do wrong, but the reasons of why we do right. You see, for James, James listeners, it, it was culturally accepted. In their culture, it was okay to do these things. In their culture, um, it, was, it was a sense of look out for your family. There, there was a sense of a me-centeredness and a self-focusedness. There, there was a sense that, that there was overtones of God. Hence, they were, they, were, they were scattered, and there were Christian people and Christian fellowship. So there was an overtone of God, yet the practical, everyday living wasn't reflecting it. That was then. Thank goodness things have changed, right? Not really. When people begin to tell me that, that the Bible is socially regressive, I have to disagree. One, because the same underlining cultural issues that were there 2,000 years ago are the same things that we see in different forms today. We happen to live in a culture that says it's all about you. Yeah, you should give your money to some people. Yeah, you should help out some charities. Yeah, you should be a good neighbor, but ultimately, it's about you and what you can do. Whenever those things get in the way of you pursuing your happiness, whenever those things get in the way of you pursuing your dreams, then cut it out. We even see it in media and advertisement. 
Um, I love advertisements. So there's, there's the army, right? Um, be all you can be in the army. Or, or Burger King. Do you guys know the Burger King one? Your way, right away. It's like my way, right away. And then my new favorite is the Channel 12 News. I don't know if you guys watch the Channel 12 News, but it's amazing. Their new slogan is, it's all about you. <laughs> it's like even the news. The news is just, wow, the news is about me. And <laughs> how thoughtful. <laughs> of NBC, <laughs> you know? It's, 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 all, it's all about you. The, our cultural narrative puts us at the center of the story, and, and yet the biblical narrative has a different perspective and a different outlook on who we are and what we're supposed to do. James, James says, you, you don't even know what tomorrow may bring. Like, like definitely plan. Um, Make good decisions. Make good choices. Think about tomorrow. Think about the future. But, but understand this. You, you don't know what tomorrow may bring. To me, that's kind of scary when you actually think about that. We're, we're, we're such a presumptuous people that we just expect. We're such an entitlement people that we just expect for things to happen and things to go a certain way, and yet they don't always go the way we plan. In fact, in some cases, though rare, the things that we plan go even better than we could have ever even imagined. And on the flip side, the things that we plan go way worse, way worse. Um, my last year, my last 12 months working in uh, student ministries at the Gilbert campus, we had 12 months, we had four dads die. Four dads, 50 and under, unexpectedly. Some 8 to 10 kids, 12 to 18 years old. 12 to 18 years old, one of the most pivotal times in your life, and, and spiritually speaking, the central figure and head of your family, gone. Gone. You, you don't think those, those dads had plans for their, for their kids? You don't, you don't think those children had plans? You know, we're going to wake up, we're going to hang out with dad, we're going to do this, my dad's kind of annoying, he does this, he does that, and then, and then he's gone. The spouses... They had plans. Uh, and talking through this text with a good spiritual mentor and leader of mine, uh, as much older than I is, he says every time he reads this, he thinks about him and his wife walking down the beach, talking. Kids were all out of the house. Adults had their own families, bearing fruit in the gospel. Everything was going good. And looking at his wife and saying, listen, holding hands, the only way that this could get jacked up is if one of us gets sick. And a few months later, she was diagnosed with cancer. And, and, and that's what James is saying. You, you, don't, you, you just don't know. There are people in this room, myself included, we, we, don't, we don't know what may happen the next 20 minutes, the next hour, the next week, the next couple of years. And, and James is saying, don't, don't, don't not plan, but just, just, just understand that God is sovereign. When you go to do business, when you go to make investments, just understand this. There's no guarantees except for God is sovereign. I, I think in business-wise, for us, we, there's a lot of people that, that put money in the homes. There's a lot of people that put money into different investments, and then we have a recession, and then we have an economic de decline, and it's like, oh my goodness, what happened? And I think one of the, the clearest visuals for us here is, is those Centerpoint condos on Mill Avenue, 
If you go down the Mill Avenue, walk out of Z Tejas, you don't even have to walk out of Z Tejas, although I just did give a plug for Z Tejas. Um, you, can, you, can, you can walk out of there and you see these huge condos, and they've been there for a while. You can see them off the 202 freeway, and yet nothing's happening there. No one lives there. There's no business being done out of there. I, I guarantee you when, when those men and women planned to create that and they planned to build that, they had ideas. They had plans. This is what's going to happen. We're going to make our money back this way. People are going to love it. We're going to get a bunch of stupid college kids that spend a lot of money to live there. And we're going we're, we're, we're to make, make money. And now it's, it's just there. That's what James is saying. Make your plans. But no, you don't even know what tomorrow may bring. He, 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 goes, he goes forward in, in verse 14, and he asks the question, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Um, he says, what is your life? Like, what is your life? Let me tell you, you're like a puff of smoke that goes up in the air, and then it's gone. You're like breath in a cold day that shows for a while. There's a record, but then it's gone. And he communicates what he's saying is you're, you're like this big in the backdrop of who God is. You have a time span. God does not. He's eternal. He, he, never, he doesn't have a beginning nor an end. He, he is God. He will always be. He was never created. And he's saying in the backdrop, not of time, but in the backdrop of God, this is what you're like. You, you, you have this much time. And yet, so many of us spend that little time trying to make a name for ourselves or trying to make a reputation for ourselves, and we slave and we toil over and over again to make a dent in life, whether it be good, a good dent, or a bad dent. Some of us do it. We, we, we want to see poverty eradicated, which is a, a great, great desire. Some of us do it. We want to be able to leave a legacy for our kids. We want to be able to pay off our debt. All good things. But we labor for those things over and over again. And sometimes, at the core of it, it's to make a name for ourselves that only lasts that long. That long. We make really good choices. We have a lot of possessions. We've done well in business and so forth. But here's the truth. That doesn't make you matter. We've started Bible studies that multiply to Bible studies. That's great. But that doesn't make you matter. We've led this many people to the Lord, yes, but that doesn't make you matter. And on the flip side, you have people, these people can be confident because of what God has allowed them to have, even though that doesn't matter. On the flip side, you have people, you have people who, who don't have confidence. You have people that, for whatever circumstances, in their life, the sun, the sun doesn't come up as much as it does for most of us. It's always cloudy. It's always dark. They haven't made some of the best decisions. Sometimes they haven't made some of the best choices. They, they, they carry bags and bags of regret, and guilt, and shame. And, 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 and then the older you get, those regrets become disappointments. A bunch of the pastors were together this, this Monday with one of the older pastors, and, and he asked, how many of you guys have disappointments? And most of us are around 28 to 33, and it's like, I don't really have any di- huge disappointments. I have some regrets. And he said, I'm just going to be honest with you. The older you get, th- those become disappointments. And some of us know exactly what that is. So on one side is you, you, you think what matters is what you do. On the flip side, it's, it, it doesn't matter because you haven't done. That, that doesn't make you matter. What makes you matter is not what you do or what you failed to do. What makes you matter is that you were created in the image 
of a holy God. Your worth, your meaning, your purpose, your value comes from the fact that you were created in the image and in the likeness of the creator. When you can stand before a holy God with whatever you've done or whatever you didn't do, you have to know that those things are washed away in the presence of a sovereign, holy God. And your worth, your meaning, your purpose all comes from him. He doesn't change. Amen? Amen. The, the, that, that's, that's good news. James, James says this. You, you, you have a, God has a plan for you. It just may not be your plan. God does have a plan for you. It just may not be your plan. He goes on to verse 15, and he says this. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. So here's the action. He says, you can plan, 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 uh, but realize you don't know what's going to happen. Your life is only this long, but this is how you should live. You should say, the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, the big if there, if the Lord wills, we'll do that and we'll do this. Um, if the Lord wills, we'll make money here and make money that. If the Lord wills, we will live. And, and that's a huge if, because what you're doing there is you're trusting everything you have in the hands of God. You're trusting all your plans for something as simple to a grocery shopping list, to, to the plans you have for your kids and your grandkids and your grandkids' kids, all in God's hands and his absolute sovereignty. And, and, and when James says, if the Lord wills, he say that he's not, it's not this um, tag on, like you just have to say it. He's not speaking verbally here. It's not the, in Jesus's name. Like if you pray for something and you say in Jesus's name, it counts. If you didn't say in Jesus's name, he's like, oh, didn't hear it. Didn't count. You didn't finish. That, that it's, it's, it's not that. There's, a, there's an internal belief here. He's saying you are taking your whole life from things that you seem that seem very small to the chair that you're sitting on to whatever the largest oh no moment you've been in or that you're in or that you will be in. Whatever you have, your planning, your money, your job, your lack of job, uh, your, your family or your lack of family, all of that, he's saying place it under God's will. Plan within the context and within the framework of God's will. Trust in the fact that God is almighty, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's eternal, he's omnipotent, he's God in his will. But the, the, the question that usually comes from there is, what is his will? One of the most commonly asked questions with Christians is, what is God's will? What is, I just want to know God's will. I want to be in God's will. And, and, and you know, let me just, we don't have time to unpack all that, but let me give you two handlebars, all right? Two handlebars to take away. First, God's will. You have to think of his sovereign will. And God's sovereign will is this, that he sovereignly ordains everything and all things that will come to pass. Um, meaning he, there's nothing that happens of which God did not sovereignly allow. He causes or allows all things, okay? Um, even bad things. He either causes it or allows things to happen. He permits it, meaning there's no spare maverick molecule that is floating off of which God does not know exactly what's going on. We read about God's sovereign will or uh, sometimes known as a secret or hidden will in Ephesians 1, chapter 11, where it says that he works all things after, after the counsel of his will the good and the bad. And so ultimately, your takeaway for understanding God's sovereign will is this. God causes or allows all things for your good and his glory. The thing about God's sovereign will is we don't always know what it is. 
until after it's come to pass. God's sovereign will. The other is, is God's revealed will. God's revealed will, meaning what he's revealed. And God's revealed will is clearly seen in the scriptures. It's the clarity of scriptures. It's the authority of scripture. It's the necessity of scripture and the sufficiency of scripture. It's everything that God has given us to know who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, and how we can live in relationship and response to what he's done and what he will do for our lives. There's a framework here. There's a pattern here that you cannot be planning unless you know what God has ultimately planned. His revealed will is that we know his word and that we know his scriptures and we're obedient to that in response to what he's done and what he's revealed um, in our hearts and what he's revealed to to us in his scriptures. And then there's the the question, I want to know God's plan for me. And I, I, sorry, I know you, is he going to tell me? No. (laughs) I I don't know the details. I I do know that God paints in large brushes and he also paints in in, in the details. But what we can know is to live in the framework of what he's given us. And so the way that I try to liken it when I, when I, when I try to tell people how to live within God's will is this. Take his revealed will, what he's given us, and live in that framework and be free within that revealed will. Um, so you, you, you have classical music and you have jazz music. You have classical music, and the classical band over here can play one song. They have the same core notes and music, and then this band over here can play the same song, and they're probably going to sound alike. Of equal skill, they're going to sound just alike. And then you have jazz, and I don't know if you guys like jazz, but it's from the Lord. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and jazz is like, you can have a, you can, two bands play the same song, completely different. This band, the drummer... And just, just, just go off on a riff over here. You got a saxophone, for, uh, saxophone or you got the trumpet, and they're just going completely different. But you can, because they're improvising, there's improvisation in jazz. You can never become a good jazz musician. You can never become a good a person who improvises unless you've mastered the core notes. Meaning you don't get past what classical music, music has given us. And so the way we, we think about that in, in Christianity is this is classical. You don't get over this. You, you know this and you perfect this. You understand God's word. So now you have the freedom within God's will, the framework to choose and move contextually as you may. So you come to a decision. Should I choose ASU or U of A? What does God want from me? <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> You're free to choose, but... To, Use wisdom and discernment. <laughs> this, 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 we can all be centered around the truth of the gospel, yet we're different. And this plays itself out great in, um, in the redemption campuses. Um, so when we get together for pastoral meetings, I always just sit back and just make observations of, you know, the other campuses. And, and the Arcadia guys come and, you know, they're nice dark jeans, a little bit tighter and, um, you know, sweater like vest or jacket and clearly cut. It's like, us uh, Arcadia guys. And like, the Gilbert guys show up in like Suburbans or something like that. And then the, then the Gateway, they're like Queen Creek. They show up in like Pioneer wagons. And, and, and then the Tempe guys show up in like skinny jeans, flip-flops, and a V-neck. No, just, just some observations I've been making. So, so the, and, and all of us, we have the same theology. We have the same doctrine. We're the same church. And yet we look completely different. Christianity and God's will for your life is not this robotic, I can't move this way or I can't move this way. It's called freedom. And it's freedom within God's will. So when you plan, 
when you plan for the future, when you plan for college, when you plan for kids, plan within God's freedom. Plan within God's revealed will with freedom. And what God has said, don't sin. Where the Bible is silent, God is silent, use wisdom. The Bible doesn't say go to ASU or U of A, but the Bible does say use wisdom. And you get wisdom from the fear of the Lord and by reading his scripture. So again, God has a plan for you, but it just may not be your plan that you have for yourself. James goes on in verse 16 and he says, as it is, so what he's saying, because you're not living in God's will, because you're not submitting everything to the absolute sovereignty of God, as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Again, James is not talking verbally here about just boasting verbally. He's saying it's your lifestyle. I mean, some of us don't come off as seeing arrogant, but we don't put our life and all of our life into the Lord. Every single one of us has a part on which we're holding back. And so I jot it down. What's the one thing in my life that I, I, I if I had to be honest, I really don't know if I'm going to give to God. And if I had to be honest, as much as I pray for him and I love him, it's my kids. So it's, my, it's my son. I, I don't know. I, I want to say, Lord, he's yours. But I don't know if he can, I don't, I don't know. If I'm just being honest, I, I trust that God has them, but there's a part of me that says, I, I'm not really sure. I've seen what happened to other people's kids. I, I've seen what this world can do. I've seen what things could happen. And yet, I, it, he's God's. God's got to have them. And every one of us, we have that something. It may be the way we actually do business. We, you, know, you have to live in the Darwinistic survival of the fittest way in order for this to work. I have to live this way. I have to work this way. I can't get ahead if I don't live this way. And yet God has a revealed will in the way that you ought to do business. Maybe it's how you spend your money. Maybe it's how you treat your spouse. I don't know what it is. There's something. Maybe it's the friendships you're in. Maybe it's the relationships you're in that, that, that you completely say, here's God's revealed will, yet I'm going to hold on to this over here and, and, and on this side. We don't really want God's plan for us. And, and to be honest with you, if, if we were all being honest, we would say because our plan may be a little better. I mean, we, we come to God kind of with a tray, and we'll say, I'll take some things of God. I'll take his mercy. I'll take his love. I'll maybe take his protection. And then over here, there's some things for my life that I want to keep that I know that if I completely line up under God, I'm going to have to give up or they're going to have to go away. And so our plan seems a little bit better. My son right now just turned two, and he's in this, uh, I don't know, you can call them terrible twos. I do. And, and he's in the independent stage where he doesn't want me to help him with anything. Um, so he invites me into his room, which I own. But I, he, he, and, and then there's, there's these, these trucks and choo-choo things, right? And I go to help him do it, and he, and he does one of these, no. And it's crazy how kids can get that, no. It's like, dude. And, and then and I try to help him some more. He says, no. He says, no. Like, he, here's a picture. He wants me there but he wants me at a distance. He wants to do what he wants to do. And if for whatever reason there's something that he can't do, if there's something where he and his own strength can't do, then he'll come to me. And, and, and that's how we live with God. We, we, want, we want God there. Yeah, we want God there. But we want him just right here. We don't want him interfering with whatever it is that, that we're doing, whatever we think we have under control. And the truth of the matter is, 
you never could control it anyway. God's going to do what God wants to do. And yet James says when you're living like that, that's the arrogance. It, it, it's just arrogance, and then he says it's evil, and he closes it in verse 617, and he says, and whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. When you plan and you're just keeping God like this, it's sin. When you plan without the acknowledgement and the worship and the submitting to God as Lord and as Savior, it's sin. When you take whatever it is, whatever relationships or whatever business or whatever thing that you have that you're holding behind your back, he's saying it is sin. And you never could control it anyway. God is always going to do what God wants to do. God is not a homeboy. He's not a sidekick. He's not a co-pilot. He's God. And he's absolutely sovereign. He will get what he wants. If God wants you, he will get you, whether it's kicking and screaming, okay? He is God. He is sovereign and he's almighty. When we read through the text and we read through the scriptures, what we see is God is always going to do what God wants to do. We have to leave a room for him. We got to leave what Oswald Chambers calls, calls elbow room elbow room for God to show up and completely surprise him. God can show up in this room now through the power of the Holy Spirit and completely shock all of us, all of us, including myself. We have to know that that's how God does. He doesn't go always as our plans, but what he does do is always good, it's always right, and it's always perfect. But here's what I get. I I get why it's hard for us to take our planning to take our families and to take our future and completely just, just trust in God. And here's why. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach us that God is safe. In fact, when we read about the holy men and women of the Bible, we see they were sawed in two, thrown in lion's dens, thrown in flaming fire, crucified like Jesus. There's nowhere that teaches that God is safe And there's nowhere that teaches that he's not dangerous. In fact, he's not safe, and he's very, very dangerous. So I get why we wouldn't put our whole life with him. I get why why we think ourselves we can live without him. And I think this this ideal of God not being safe is clearly communicated uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis, and I'm going to read this. This is Lucy acquiring of Aslan, who's the lion, who's the great lion, and it communicates how God is not safe. And she says, is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver, Mrs. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of a great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, a great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. Make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees shaking and knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. God is not safe, but he is good, and he's the king. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. 
you will never be able to take whatever those things are that you haven't fully given the Lord, even if that's your life. You will never be able to do that. You will never be fully in. You will only be parts and pieces, which doesn't count. You will never be fully in unless you see that God is good, unless you see that God is great, unless you see that God is gracious and glorious. You have to see that God is great, and so you don't have to be in control. At the core of the issue of why I can't fully give my son to the Lord, at the core of why we plan and organize to the point where it keeps us up overnight, at the core of it, it's idolatry, and it's an idol of control. We don't see God as great. We're not believing that God is great. And so we have to look to one other than Jesus. There's no clearer picture to me in scriptures than seeing God himself and the person and the work of Jesus Christ completely give God control than in, instead of in Mark 14. Mark 14, Jesus is in the garden. He knows what is before him. He knows what's coming next. And that is he's going to take the cup of wrath, of the brokenness of this world, and the wrath for every single person who would place their faith in Jesus. Jesus goes to the garden, and then he, and he's sweating blood. It's the biggest oh-no moment that could ever happen. No matter what our oh-no moments may be, whether it's cancer, whether it's a loss of a child, a loss of a job, those things are real to us. But nothing was bigger than Jesus in the garden. Nothing is bigger knowing that Christ was going to have to be crucified. And this is what he does. He prays to the Father, and he says, Father, if there's any other way, can you take this cup away from me? Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Not what I will, but what you will. Jesus Christ entrusted his entire life, even to death, to the Father. He's not safe. He's very dangerous. And yet, the Father and the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead because he's great, and we don't have to be in control. Amen? When, when we see the greatness of who God is, and we can completely trust our entire life and everything we have completely and fully to God, knowing that in the end we win, that's how we'll be able to live. It's seeing the greatness of God. In a sense, what Jesus did, it's like a poker game, and you see on ESPN, I know nothing about poker, but I know that when I'm watching ESPN and the guy puts all the chips in and he steps back, the game just got good. He takes the huge risk, he steps back and he stands up and he looks at it. Jesus Christ took everything that he had and he pushed it in. So now we, with everything we have, it's no longer a risk, it's no longer a gamble, it's guaranteed. We can take everything we have and put it in and trust that it's good in the hands of a great, gracious, glorious God. Amen, church? Amen. Three things that you'll know as you walk away and how you're living and planning into the absolute sovereignty of God. There's three indicators First is prayer. If you're not praying, you're not believing God. You're not trusting in him. You're just like my son. Stand here, and I'll do this. And if I need something big to happen, then I'll ask you. We should pray for the smallest things to the biggest things. We have to become a better praying people, just praying all the time because we trust God. There's nothing that shows our absolute dependence upon God than prayer. That's why we pray for the things we care for. The next thing is we have to know God's plan. In order for us to plan, we have to know God's plan. It sounds very familiar to what Justin said two weeks ago. In essence, it's read your Bible and pray. The way you're going to know God's plan is by reading his word. And as you know God's plan, again, you have the freedom to move and to work within God's will. 
And the last thing is, the Bible says, with, with, with many counselors, you will succeed. So it means living in context of one another's. One another, people who love Jesus, that are trying you and stretching you, bringing your plans before them, praying with you. Um, one of the ways that we do that here is redemption communities. It's living in the context of community. Christianity is not about lone rangers. Even God himself existed in Trinity. When Jesus went to the cross and he died, it was the Father and it was the Spirit that raised him, his community that helped him. And it's the same way that it would be for us. It's within community. So prayer, reading the Bible, and in the community, those show I depend upon God more than myself. I depend on God's word more than myself, and I depend upon God's people to help me in this life. Let's pray. Father, we, we, we thank you so much, Lord, uh, for how you revealed yourself and who you revealed yourself to be in Scripture. God, we just confess, Lord, um, that, that you are good and you are great and you are gracious and that you are glorious. And, and, and God, we, 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 we trust that you were with us, and Lord, we just confess in moments, Lord, that we live in disobedience. Lord, we are afraid and we are weak and our life is like a vapor, Lord, and then sometimes it's not always easy to trust you. So God, we pray for your Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would rain down upon us, that we may be people who live in full submission to your revealed will, trusting in your sovereign will, trusting that you always do what is good, right, and and perfect. Lord, we thank you for the shed blood of your son, Jesus, and in response to him trusting you, Lord, that we can fully trust you. Faith is not a gamble, It's not a risk. It's a reality and it's a certainty because of the work of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Lord, I pray that you would take us at Redemption Tempe, Lord, and help us to live in response to that and the response to that good news of Jesus, Lord. Help us when we are weak. Humble us when we are strong in ourselves. But Lord, be near to us and help us to draw near to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.